Hello, my name is Dustin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. The it- tingler is loose in this theater. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but please scream. Scream for your life. I'm very glad that Will spent a few hours working on his Vincent Price impersonation. Still not very good. <laughs> no, but you know what? If you did it, I could go, well, it's that horror guy. Vincent <laughs> Price. I mean, Vincent Price is a guy It's that- an excellent accent. <laughs> that even as a kid, I knew who he was but i think he's one of those horror actors that you can't really pinpoint a movie that people know him from you can say the roger corman you know Poe po stuff well he's not like boris karloff mm-hmm. with frankenstein or bella lugosi with dracula or even christopher lee with the dracula films or peter cushing with the frankenstein ones that's right uh vincent price is i think known more as a personality and a presence than he is for one particular film and that's because he brings that presence to every film role that he did and yet one of the iconic horror presences to the point where arguably probably the most maybe? iconic yeah i mean he is the voice in Michael Jackson's Thriller. Mm-hmm. He is the inventor in Edward Scissorhands. He is the subject of the short film Vincent, also Tim Burton, mm-hmm. about a young boy who wants to be Vincent Price, back when Tim Burton actually had some kind of interesting visual imagination <laughs> to share. And a man whose uh, reputation, whose image is still so much a part of the popular imagination that Saturday Night Live, as recently as this decade, had a recurring series of sketches about him. Yep, uh, starring Bill Hader, who, you know, his impersonation of Vincent Price, not that hot either. (laughs) Which is, I think, what most people imitate. Yeah. So when you think of Vincent Price as a horror personality, what do you think of, Will? Because, I mean, when I think of him, I think of, like, big, evil, hammy. The scene that really comes to me first is the opening of House on Haunted Hill. Mm -hmm. The one where he's narrating it, he's saying who he is, you know, this... Uh, rich, eccentric man with a spooky house who's inviting all of these people to come and spend a night in his spooky mansion to get $5,000. $5,000? I, I think it's some sum like that. And, and, and the way he narrates it, he narrates it like... I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm losing it. He, You're losing it right through your fingers. I think one of the reasons people like Vincent Price is he finds the material funny, but he also wants to let you in on it. He sort of approaches the audience on his level. Vincent Price was never a guy that he loved every role that he did, but you can tell that he relishes playing the bad guy. Unlike someone like Boris Karloff, who oftentimes he thinks he's above the material. And Vincent Price is obviously somebody who has sort of a high class affect. He's, you know, the sophisticated old world uh, he, he has kind of a European quality to him, you know? Yeah, he does. He, he's an art lover and a collector. kind of. Uh, and so you sort of know that he's above some of the material, but mm-hmm. but he but he relishes it. And in fact, he wants to have you bring you in on, on the love. Yeah, I mean, like when I think of Vincent Price... He's like democratic, you know? <laughs> well, he, he, I think of him as a presence. When you go to a Vincent Price film, you're, he's not going to surprise you and you're going to be like, whoa, wah, that was Vincent Price? Because... People want something very particular when they go and see him and when people would cast him in roles. Even though that when he started back in the day, he was kind of like a Clark Gable style leading man, a contract player. Which is kind of hard for me to imagine. I mean, I know he began as a matinee idol and Mm -hmm. then he eventually became a character actor before becoming the horror guy. But there's something about him that, I don't know, I'm not sure I buy him as a matinee idol. I know that he was handsome and was regarded as handsome, but not only 
is his body a little bit strange? He's well, he's very tall. Very tall. And he's got a really long face, and he's got that voice, mm-hmm. which is so unusual. I mean, it's... <laughs> you know. Well, there's something devilish behind, like, something... I want to say wrong, but almost like evil when he talks, right? Yeah. It's difficult to see him as a good guy. Yeah. And so like in a movie like Otto Preminger's Laura, when he shows up and in the first couple of scenes, he's, you know, maintaining his innocence in the murder. You think there's something there's something off about this guy, right? Like, how could how can this man be innocent? (laughs) That's right. Coupled with the fact that he's not a naturalistic actor. Well, I think that early on in his career, what he was very good at were those comedic performances. The things that, like, you know, it let him ham it up a little bit. In the 40s, after he had his stand as a matinee idol and he transitioned to those roles like Laura, I mean, he's somebody who I buy more as, like, the dignitary or the judge or, mm. the, or the constable. So right? you, like a position of authority? I think so. It's like, he seems like a character actor elevated to leading man status. You know, he's very theatrical. He's very intense and he's uh, very comfortable with sort of loquacious dialogue. And when he's delivering the dialogue, there's something kind of unreal about him. It's like, he's not somebody who I, I feel like as a leading man, you're quite at ease with, mm. you know? There's well, that's something. why he's kind of like a secret weapon sometimes for movies to like insert as a character part. And when he's at the center of a film, the film thematically and tonally needs to fit his performance. For example, I watched Theater of Blood where he plays a crazed uh, Shakespearean actor who is murdering critics who gave him bad reviews. That is like the textbook Vincent Price role. I, well, that's that's a template of yeah. these movies, which goes back to the movie that was the real turning point in his career, House of Wax, mm. uh, where, you know, he used his uh, uh, wax-making uh, abilities to have revenge on all the people who well, wronged Vincent him. Well, Vincent Price, the perfect character for him, is someone who's been wronged and wants revenge. Uh, the Mad Magician, which yeah. was the rip-off movie that he made the year after of House of Wax. Or the abominable Dr. Fives, where he plays another guy who wants revenge on the people that hurt him. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is, I think, that when you're talking about, like, an actor, what role does he fill that is the perfect Vincent Price role which is why when you watch something like Last Man on Earth which I know me and Will watched recently mm-hmm. that you can understand why Richard Matheson the writer of the novel and the screenplay was actually so angered about the final version of the movie that he took his name off of the screenplay because mm-hmm. his film was about the everyman and then they cast Vincent Price in that role and I do think he's a little awkward in The Last Man on Earth. I mean, I can understand the position that Matheson was taking when he said, like, this is not what I imagined. But at the same time, it's almost like, oh, someone with Vincent Price's personality. Of course he's The Last Man on Earth. Who else could survive? That's true. Well, The Last Man on Earth, which was released in 1964, well into Vincent Price's uh, middle-aged hood and well into his status as a horror icon, this was, I think, an Italian production that was supposed to look American. Is it set in, like, San Francisco yes, or something? Yes, it is supposed to be American. But it's obviously Rome. Yes. Like, <laughs> there are opening, establishing shots of, of Rome. Rome. Yes. And it definitely feels like one of those movies that was cobbled together as sort of an international co-pro, where it's like, okay, who's who's available, who we can s- sort of pre-sell this to a lot of territories with? Oh, Vincent Price. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think he's fine in the movie. Yeah. I think the film, as of almost like an art horror, 
horror picture works. I can understand why it has disappointed young teens seeing it in the shock theater package for decades because it's not the horror movie you want it to be. Last Man on Earth, of course, is the precursor to the Omega Man mm. based on the same story. And the classic Will Smith picture, I Am Legend. And it was also a key inspiration for Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, it's crazy watching the movie considering the Night of the Living Dead had not come out yet because the stylistic kind of conceits are the same that Night of the Living Dead would use. Yeah, so during the day, he's the last man on Earth, but then at night, these zombie-type creatures vampires. are actually vampires yes. come out at night and they, you know, siege his home like the Romero zombies do. And basically... And they say weird things overdubbed on the dialogue. Like, there's one zombie who goes, come out, come out, <laughs> yeah, so they can talk. Right. They can talk. In the book, uh, or I guess the novel that Richard Madison wrote, the movie's actually pretty close close to it being that the ending what's supposed to happen and the film kind of pushes towards it but doesn't really land it is the idea that he's the last man on earth but he's the villain to these people mm -hmm. he's the boogeyman going and killing them and they want to create a new society yeah and he's this monster trying to keep that from happening mm -hmm. and it's out of all the movies that we just mentioned it's actually the one that comes closest to that except for the vincent price performance which is big he gets to do like this voiceover where he's like ah the garlic it's losing its power they hate mirrors as well yeah. he also has a nice little mustache yeah, he which does. he maintains during the apocalypse <laughs> he is very well groomed listen you gotta keep yourself sane somehow so I actually do like Vincent Price in this movie, mm -hmm. even though I said he was a bit awkward in it, because in addition to everything else, in addition to the fact that he's like uh, the master of evil and he's uh, a great puppet master in some of these movies, there's also a vulnerable side to him, which is why he works in all these revenge movies. There's something about him. You know, he, he plays sad very well. Yeah, he does. Well, because it's like the big personality when you're a large man. Yeah, too. when you ask it to deliver longing or loss, he fills up the screen. Exactly. You get even more of that when it's on screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why he works so well in that Roger Corman cycle of movies that he made. Well, he's very good in the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies. And as much as we're talking about him being a ham and being big, mm. he could also be a very understated actor too. I mean, in House of Usher, he plays it very small. Right. There's something just about him. Like he has this otherworldly offbeat affect to him with that voice and mm -hmm. with that face of his that actually he can sometimes do very little and give off a lot. In some of the movies, he just sort of raises an eyebrow um, <laughs> yep. and, and it seems to speak volumes. In House of Usher, he's very subtle. Uh, you know, it makes me think of like, what would he have done if Corman had not kind of swooped in and pushed him in that direction? Because he did already have a kind of horror background at that point. Right. So he, uh, after working at Universal in the 30s, and in fact, he came up through theater, he he was a member of Orson Welles's Mercury Theater. He was! And I think that he's a perfect Welles player. Why isn't he in any of the movies? <laughs> I actually do think he has a bit of an Orson Welles vibe to him at times. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm talking like Citizen Kane yes. era Welles. Could you have a uh, Vincent Price as Kane in Citizen Kane? <laughs> I mean, it would, it would probably be a different... <laughs> I, actually, I, I'm envisioning it in my mind yep. right now. That scene where Susan Alexander is crying on the floor about her bad reviews mm -hmm. and he yells at her. Yeah. I could totally see Vincent Price <laughs> yeah. doing that. I could see... I mean, the thing about Vincent Price is even at his youngest, he never really looked very young. Yeah, because so. he was so big and large yeah. and awkward But looking. I imagine, yeah, the low angles looking up at the ceiling with Vincent Price at the center. He had a seven-year contract at Fox and you'll often see him pop up in Fox movies from the 40s, such as Laura, The Song of Bernadette, A Royal Scandal, and another uh, movie that was 
sort of pushed him in the horror direction, Dragonwick by, mm. I think, Joseph Mankiewicz. Yep, it was Mankiewicz, yeah. like the gothic kind of romance. Yeah. Uh, he was also the voice of the Invisible Man in one of those movies. Yeah, Return of the Invisible Man. I think it was his third or fourth role, and he also appears very briefly at the end of Abbott and Costello as the Invisible Man. Oh, I was hoping to get in on the fun. <laughs> oh, allow me to introduce myself. I'm the Invisible Man. <laughs> Classic. Classic. So... House of Wax, the big turning point in Let me get my ping pong racket out. Boop, 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 well, boop. House of Wax was the most popular of all the big 3D movies from the 1950s. It was, you know, a top five box mm-hmm. office movie of that year. And of course, it has the scene where the ping pong man <laughs> yeah, with a ping pong right. paddle comes out halfway through and just ping pongs his paddle straight into, <laughs> right the, into camera. the camera i think he's doing a bunch of stuff it's just a guy like oh look at this Whoa. i mean i have had the great fortune to see house of wax in 3d yeah that was a hold up it was a great experience listen that's not the way that andre de toth expected to see the movie because he only had one eye and the 3d didn't work for him well as andre de toth said in an interview beethoven didn't hear the music either <laughs> And he was right. It's a great 3D movie. There you go. So after that, like you said, it kind of cemented his persona. Now, if you watch like interviews or documentaries about him, people like his daughter, who kind of became his biographer later on in life, will say stuff like, ah, he just loved playing villains. Sure. I guess like retroactively, he probably feels that way. I do wonder because whenever you read about Vincent Price, whenever you watch documentaries about him, see him interviewed, he unfailingly gives off the impression of being a happy, avuncular kind of guy. He's not somebody like Bella Lugosi, who, I mean, unlike Bella Lugosi, he kept working to the end. Mm-hmm. But he's not like some of the other stars who seem to resent their typecasting. Well, I feel like Vincent Price is one of those people that he was allowed to kind of show other sides of his personality. Like, when people talk about him, I mean, people that are knowledgeable about him, they say, like, he had a great art collection, he wrote a bunch of cookbooks, he had a lot of friends, he would go on game shows. Did you see that clip of him on the $64,000 question? Yeah, and in fact, I, I love this side of Vincent Price, Mm -hmm. the fact that he was a real renaissance man in real life. In the 1960s and 70s, he established, uh, so he donated a lot of his work to create an art museum at a community college in California. He also established this project, the Vincent Price Fine Art Collection at Sears Roebuck. So, and because he very much believed that art should be for the masses. So people could go to Sears Roebuck and buy prints of Picasso, Dali, Rembrandt, all uh, personally hand-selected by Mr. Price himself. I mean, he also, uh, in the 80s, went on tour with a one-man show as Oscar Wilde. See, that's the thing about Vincent Price, right, is that he got, it feels like, to do a bunch of stuff that he wanted to. Mm -hmm. Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, you feel that they're, like, trapped in these roles, these horror icons, and they never liked it, and they weren't able to do this other stuff. I assume Vincent Price must have been pretty savvy with his money, Yeah, that's probably what it was. (laughs) Uh, Because, I mean, you can't build an art collection if you're not. I I watched an A&E biography of him where uh, Dennis Hopper was in it, saying that (laughs) basically the first time he ever saw abstract experience Expressionism was at Vincent Price's house because he had these like Jackson Pollock paintings before any museums had them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what separates him again from all those people, even though that as his career, like he had his ups and downs. Like if he's in an Italian co-production, that's <laughs> definitely a down in his career. Right. I mean, he also starred in, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Confessions of an Opium Eater. Yeah, I haven't is, seen it. Oh yeah. my God, it is so wild. It's like a stream of consciousness, like 
pulp nightmare of mm-hmm. Vincent Price just in this fake Chinatown. The movie takes place essentially in real time mm-hmm. as he like flies a kite and then climbs up the kite to a room where then he's attacked by a bunch of guys. And that movie is a perfect example of Vincent Price being completely miscast as like a swashbuckling hero, <laughs> which is like not a role that he can play. It is interesting that among all the big horror actors, he's the one who you may associate him more with horror than anybody, but you also don't just associate him with horror. I mean, uh, there, there, he was in the 10 commandments, for instance, he's in, uh, 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 he's in, have you seen, uh, Samuel Fuller's the Baron of Arizona? I have not seen that. Oh, one. it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Does he have a big meaty role in that? Yeah. I yeah. mean, has Vincent Price ever had a role that wasn't big and meaty? Yeah. <laughs> it's like his personality. It, it's yeah. impossible for it not to be that. Uh, later in his career, I haven't seen it, but in the late eighties, he was in a film, the whales of August with Lillian Gish and Betty Davis. That's right. It was kind of like a TV movie ish thing. I, I watched that same A&E documentary you did <laughs> and they show clips of it and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, it's not the big, kind of like Max Rose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because like Vincent Price near the end of his life, he's one of those guys that like, while he was out there and he, he was a personality, it never felt like sad. I mean, I wasn't there to watch it, but like when people talk about it, it it's not tinged with that like, ah, the things he wished he could have done. I watched a great interview with him from I think 1986 where he was promoting The Great Mouse Detective. Yes, who, which he said was one of his favorite roles because he got to sing two songs in it. There was an interview with him where he's at, you know, some beautiful estate that he owned and he's holding this little statue that the Disney company had sent him of his character. He said, ooh, this is the rat that I play. And he's, you know, laughing his way through the interview talking about all these movies he made that were really bad. Ooh, that movie is on every list of the 50 worst films ever made, which is an achievement done to itself. <laughs> I mean, that's what's fun about Vincent Price, is you feel like he's having a ball doing what he's doing, whether it be like that or appearing on the Batman TV show. Well, I did revisit <laughs> you uh, did? one of his episodes on the Batman Wait, TV show. Wait, he had more than one? He had, I think... Two, because Eggman episodes. Yeah, because you remember that it was always a cliffhanger. So there were mm, he had a, that's right, a two two-parter. episode arc and then another two parter. Did and he I, ever team up with his good friend Otto Preminger? <laughs> sadly, no. Oh, but no. yeah, I did. I did watch one of them where he plays Egghead. Yep, that's right. Who is the cleverest villain? One of the smartest minds. And in the episode I watched, he cleverly deduces who Batman is because he uh, kidnaps you know, three, you know, super rich Gothamites. And he says, I deduced that Batman would have had to have been somebody very wealthy because crime fighting is an expensive hobby. And it's like, yeah, he is, <laughs> That's smart. He is the smartest villain. How come nobody had ever thought of that? <laughs> I mean, Vincent Price near the end of his career, he like, I mean, I don't want to say that he didn't say no to, <laughs> he didn't say no to anything. Oh, he could be bought for yeah. sure. I mean, he narrated 130 episodes of the classic Canadian show, The Hilarious House of Frightenstein, <laughs> which I think a lot of people associate him with. Before we finish, l- let's talk a little bit about those Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies. Probably because... his defining, I think, series of films. I mean, m- people may argue the William Castle films, but come on, guys, go watch those movies again. I mean, Vincent Price is fun in them, but... 
Well, the the William Castle movies, what people remember about those is John Waters talking about the gimmicks that they used. <laughs> yeah, that's you right. Know? I, so House on Haunted Hill, what was it? Was it Emergo? Was that the technology he called? I thought, yeah, I think it was Emergo because it was a skeleton on the wire that went across the audience. And of course, the Tingler, for those who don't know, which is a little a little tingle. It a was zap. A, it was a mix between a lobster and a crab, and it would get inside your body and it would zap you. And then there comes a point when screen goes black and he says, the tingler is loose in this theater. And ideally all the seats would be wired with a buzzer, but in the smaller towns, it was maybe 10 seats. I really hope that someone listening to this podcast has never heard of this before. I think some people really, have Yeah. Cause I think it's, it's one of the most famous, I think movie gimmicks. Yeah. And other than that, there's the Corman film and those ones have no gimmicks. The only gimmick was that Corman at this part of his career had been doing double bills for AIP. Vincent Price at this point had already been kind of an AIP contract player. Well, AIP was kind of a bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a Poverty Row Company. Because they didn't exist anymore. But, you know, after the studios lost control of their movie theater chains because of the Supreme Court decision, AIP came in to supply cheap material for the for the grindhouses and the movie theaters that they didn't previously have access to. Yeah. And so they got Vincent Price on their staple. He starred in a whole bunch of movies. And Corman's idea for House of Usher was instead of uh, making two cheap black and white movies for a double bill, what if we spent that money to make one better color movie? Mm, 79 minutes. <laughs> 79 minutes. And, and he had a luxurious 15-day shooting schedule. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, the AIP bosses were like, whoa, 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 House of Usher, what's the beast in this? What, what? And Corman said, uh, the house is the monster. <laughs> and that's why there's a scene in the movie where Vincent Price goes, the house lives, the house breathes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and the film is a very slow-paced, luxurious yeah. kind of atmospheric motion picture. Yeah, I, I think I, I like House of Usher quite, quite a bit. I like uh, Vincent Price's, you know... Blonde hair. <laughs> blonde haired, you know, uh, startling kind of iconic performance. He's like the male Garbo. (laughs) (laughs) You're a big like Mark Hammond fan, that old block of wood at the center of the movie? No, I mean, so this is probably the problem with the Edgar Allan Poe movies is that it's always, you know, Vincent Price owns the big mansion Mm -hmm. and then he's visited by some charisma-free, you (laughs) know, young doofus. Probably pop star or something like that. Who comes and, you know, he's missing his sister or he wants to see his wife or Mm. something like that and Vincent Price is holding her hostage in the bay. Basement. I mean, there's a bunch of different Corman Poe films. I mean, one of them is not a Poe film, The Haunted Palace, which is a Lovecraft adaptation. Right, but they still call it Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe's. Poe's The Haunted Palace. There's the comedy one he did with Boris Karloff, The Raven, yeah. where they're shooting energy beams at each other. The, the Pit and the Pendulum is great, of course. And then there's the one that is universally considered the best, Mask of the Red Death. Mm-hmm, the one shot by Nick Rogue himself. Uh, with beautiful psychedelic colors. Yeah. And then you also have the one that the real connoisseurs say that it's their favorite. The Martin Scorsese's out there, which is, I'm going to say the title incorrectly, Tomb of Ligeria? Uh, the Tomb of Ligeia. Ligeia. There you go. Add an extra R in it. And that's the only one that was shot on location. Mm. And that's the one where Vincent Price And that was is, the last one, too, I believe. That's right. Price is 30 years too old for it. Yeah. Uh, but I actually... Uh, near the end of his career, he's usually 30 years <laughs> too old for everything that he plays. I do love the Tomb of Ligeia. It's just kind of a... I find it just a beautiful kind of atmospheric mm. melancholy. Uh, I'm just, you know, rattling platitudes here. <laughs> well, it's if House 
of Usher is the dry run. Tomb of Ligeia is like the final ultimate version of the Corman Poe Price picture. Mm. And after that, Vincent Price would get into gothic stuff, but because it was so prevalent and those Poe pictures were very successful, it went the way that anything successful goes. It becomes a joke. So you have stuff like House of Long Shadows, mm. which Price is like, ugh, not so hot in. Yeah. But then near the end of his career, you get him like he got that last little boost at the end from people like Tim Burton, from people like Michael Jackson. Um, you even had people like Jeff Burr and Courtney C. Joyner. They actually went to his house and I think that he was either mowing his lawn or something like mm-hmm. that. And he's like, oh, yeah, come in, guys. Let's have a talk. Mm-hmm. And he ended up being in their movie, uh, The Offspring, or as it's also known now as From a Whisper to a Scream in the bookends. Uh, before we end the episode... Uh, Another thing about his screen presence that maybe bears mentioning is the fact that he seems a little gay. I would hate to, you know, end this discussion on such a vulgar topic as the man's sexuality, (laughs) but I I feel like to honestly reckon with him on screen, that's kind of part of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like he has this. uh, But what do you think? You said that he doesn't feel camp to you. Isn't that kind of. uh, Well, I mean. Uh, I, I might have to pull out my Susan Sontag essay to get the exact cor- correct definition of camp. Yeah. But it's like camp is something that's unintentional. Mm. Like, like. Oh, that's right. And Vincent Price. Right. He's very intentional so, like, in what he's doing. Greta Garbo wouldn't have thought of herself as camp. Mar- Marlena Mar- Dietrich. Right. Yeah. Wouldn't. But but he he knows. He knows it's a joke. He knows mm-hmm. it's kind of silly. And I mean, I think he was bisexual in real life. But, but I there, don't know. I would believe it. Yes. But there's something like just. No one can see the Will shaking his head, <laughs> hands up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> like there, there's something about him that seems a little a little strange. And you think that he has that over people like Bella Lugosi? I th- I think so, yeah. Or Bella Boris Lug- Car- I mean, Yeah, Bella Lugosi, swung most words. <laughs> Bella Lugosi seems very heterosexual to me. <laughs> yeah, so manly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, Vincent Price, good man, good actor. I like him. Yeah, live the full life. <laughs> w- wish I could have met him. <laughs> What would you? He would probably been very polite and nice. And... Yeah, I, I would have asked him about art and listened to him talk. <laughs> so on our Patreon this week, we talked about another horror classic, <laughs> the Brian De Palma film Wise Guys. Oh wow, the one that stars uh, two heavyweights, Danny DeVito. Joe Piscopo, actually way more than two heavy weights, because you also have Captain Lou Albana, Super Mario himself. So uh, we picked this consciously because it's everybody's least favorite Brian De Palma movie. The Irishman is coming out. Yeah, Harvey Keitel. <laughs> yeah, um, is in both movies. And also because Joe Piscopo was in it. Yeah, and Will has never gotten a platform to Piscopo out. <laughs> finally on this podcast, he can do that. You can listen to it um, by becoming a Patreon subscriber. $5 a month, and you can go to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club and subscribe. All right, in November, we're going to try to do film... No, we're not going to try. We will. We'll do filmmakers or artists, depending on what it is, from countries that we have never talked about. Almost 200 episodes. There's still countries we haven't touched. There are uh, most, most countries yeah. we haven't touched. Like Hong Kong. <laughs> We've basically talked about three countries. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, Canada, a little bit. One yeah. or two episodes. Um, so we'll be talking about the uh, Czech director, animator, Jan Schwankmeyer. The most famous movie is Alice. Yeah, he also did uh, Faust, and he did Little Otik. He was known mostly for his very surreal stop-motion short film. So I'm excited to dive into that. Not a lot of movies to watch. And by the way, please send us some letters yes, at Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. Because if we need to pad these episodes, <laughs> we will. Yeah. So please send us long letters with lots of questions. That's right. So again, that's 
comments in Point Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, so until next week, my name does the glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Last week, Toronto recaptured the Grindhouse experience. Yes. Because Justin DeClue took over a theater called the Grand Girard, which is in the east end of Toronto. Uh, the east end being a vast expanse that <laughs> most of us on the west end never go. <laughs> well, you don't even live on the west end, do you? You live, like, downtown. Yeah, I live I live on the border of the east and west end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and I only ever turn left. <laughs> so, the Grand Girard is this theater that was built like 30 years ago and it's still the same seats hasn't really changed and every year some uh some, every five years somebody comes along and tries to do something with it so i just uh, asked on twitter i was like hey is there anywhere i could do like a 24-hour movie marathon and i didn't actually want a theater i wanted like a room where i could put like maybe 30 seats or something like that because that would have been perfect but the grand gerard reached out and they're like hey yeah do it here and i said okay but it needs to be a surprise marathon so i'm not saying any titles for so nobody money because <laughs> yeah. i'm not gonna make enough money to actually make it worthwhile otherwise and so i worked really hard on getting the perfect program for the 10 to 20 people who stayed the entire 24 hours. Plus who, other other uh, dilettantes like myself who drift in and out. Yeah, that's right. But I'm not going to lie. The main reason, the one movie that was on my list right at the beginning was the one that played at midnight. So you showed up at the beginning where I showed uh, Anguish. Which I liked. Yeah. Uh, if people haven't seen Anguish, it's a very disturbing movie that I actually don't want to talk about too much because it spoils what it's actually about. Mm-hmm. If you search it on Google, you'll see and you read a little bit, you'll find out. So go in blind, I don't know, find a DVD or something like that. But let me just say it was the perfect movie to start in a movie theater, especially a bit of a disreputable one. Yeah, yeah. Don't read anything about it before no. watching it. And but- so... Uh- other than that, I told Will what I was playing at midnight, which was the first film I had on my list, which was the uh, important cinema club favorite, Roger Watkins' Last House on Dead End Street. Yeah, so I was like, oh shit, okay, I gotta figure out a way to make this work. So <laughs> I, I, I went out somewhere else, and then I took an expensive cab ride back to the Grand Girard <laughs> to get there for midnight. Yeah. And it was the best possible way to see Last House on Dead End Street, because, you know, the, the place was just a bit drafty, and it was midnight, and I was kind of falling asleep, and uh, the theater was kind of run down, and it felt a bit like a grindhouse. It does. It, it looks and feels like a grindhouse. I gotta say that the people at the Grand Girard are very nice. Like, they were very open and helpful with everything that I did. All that's missing is somebody, like, pissing their pants, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and right. somebody stabbing you in the aisle. Uh, I have to say that uh, near early in the morning, it was raining incredibly hard the entire time and the roof started to leak so you heard like the bloop 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 on a bunch of seats I mean that sort of added to my experience watching Last House on Dead End Street sort of <laughs> in this unfamiliar neighborhood very confused and wet yes. uh, watching this deeply unpleasant diseased movie watching the movie sitting in the audience thankfully my friend Adam showed up at that time and I was sitting beside him and I was like Oh, man, this is a lot more unpleasant than I remember it being. The distance between me sitting at home and being like, yeah, man, I'm going to show this to an unsuspecting audience and having to sit in that audience and watch it. Oh, holy shit. I mean, when when it's on a big screen and there's no escape from it. Yeah. Well, I got to point out, there's one little thing that added to my discomfort, which was at the beginning of the marathon, uh, a very nice man and a woman and their child, who I later found out was eight years old. 
just get a pass for 12, uh, showed up and they were like, we're going to stay the entire time. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. Good luck. Well, they did. <laughs> and so by the time Last House on Dead End Street, Street started, around, I was like, oh, Last House on Dead End Street, a movie that contains a scene where uh, a nude woman in blackface is, is <laughs> whipped. whipped at a party. <laughs> I had forgotten about that scene. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, when you think of Last House on Dead End Street, you remember that last 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing that's the most memorable. And uh, but, uh, but everything before that is very ugly and Yeah, I feel like a rape scene as well. I mean, it really feels like a snuff film. It does. And so did the eight-year-old like it? No, because the eight-year-old did not watch it. Her dad put a blanket on her head for that movie. So she heard the amazing that, she score. Did. She said, I did not fall asleep, and all I heard was screaming the entire time. <laughs> but she was all, like, giddy, and she had so much fun the entire time. Oh, nice. Can you imagine being eight years old and your parents taking you to that? I asked her, and I was like, was it tough to convince your parents to take you to this? And she was like, oh, boy, yeah, it was so hard. <laughs> and her dad was like, we didn't know what the movies were, so it was that was taking a chance. And I was yeah. like, yeah, they were probably a little bit rough, because after Last House on Dead End Street, I played Splatter Farm, which you can <laughs> hear me talk about on No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, which is, that is, um, it's not the equivalent of Last House on Dead End Street. It's a home movie. It is, but it's like, teenagers trying to be as gross as they can in the 80s. Mm-hmm. The kid was not covered up for that one, but she said that she had a blast because it's so impoverished. It feels like a joke. I feel like when you're eight years old, you may have the energy to be able to kind of make it 24 hours. She did. Out. She fell asleep okay. for like three of the movies near the end because, I mean, I can go through the movie. So it was Anguish and then it was Stage Fright, Mikel Suave's, mm-hmm. and then it was The Cat, The, cat, Hong, Kong the Hong Kong movie. I played a Japanese film. Uh, I think it's like The Legend of the Ghost Cat, which mm-hmm. was one that I had ne- I had because I'm like, I gotta need some deep cuts for people that have never seen stuff. And then I showed, like, you know, popular stuff near the end. But in the middle, I played uh, Dementia, also known which, as Daughter which I, of Horror. I love. That's yeah. an amazing kind of... Did you play the version that has no, Ed McMahon? No, I played no voiceover. Because I literally told people, I'm like, I want you to fall asleep during this movie and wake up and be like, what's going on? Because there's no dialogue. It's all music. It's like a woman's voice singing, ah. <laughs> the entire time and after that as if I was going to give like you know oh I'm going to bring up the energy nope I showed Messiah of Evil <laughs> the <laughs> William Hayek and Gloria Katz movie and uh, you know it's funny that like every movie I showed it was someone's favorite movie so that's good <laughs> nice that's what you want for a marathon like that mm-hmm. so yeah that was fun uh, I wish more people had shown up it was still pretty good it was a good attendance when I was there I mean you know 24 hours is yeah a but I want at least like 100 right from the get go how many, how many certificates of completion did you give out I think I gave 15 around 15 okay. or 20 of people that get, that stayed for like the full 24 hours people left and came back which I encouraged so nice. that that's fine even though I'm like all the good movies are in the wee hours of the morning when you're yeah. sleep deprived. Did I fall asleep? Of course I did. I'm not going to stand for 24 hours. You've seen all those movies. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them I saw. Even though I was like, I want to sleep during dementia. And I couldn't. I was just staring at it the entire time. <laughs> it was more near the wee hours of the morning that I finally conked out. All right. Another thing that recently happened is that My Name is Dolomite came out on Netflix. Oh, yeah. I watched it the day it came out. <laughs> did you? <laughs> yeah. yeah What would you think? I had a great time. Yeah. It's one of those movies that it's like... You know, I could understand that, like, I wish maybe it was a little bit, like, darker. Or a little less conventional. Yeah, but... It's it's super satisfying. <laughs> like... Yeah, it's like Dolomite. It, I mean, Rudy Ray Moore getting a Hollywood biopic. How 
absurd is that? Yeah, it's insane. By the uh, Ed Wood boys. And you got uh, Eddie Murphy, Wesley Snipes. Wesley like, Snipes is so great good. It. Yeah. It's it's sort of, you know, the black exploitation Ed Wood, mm-hmm. but you know, the the difference is that I don't think unlike in Ed Wood, there aren't moments where you laugh at the incompetence. Like, yeah, that's like, right. I like thought, you're never laughing at Rudy Ray Moore. Like I thought for sure there would be a lot of jokes about the boom mic. Yes. And there weren't. There, there is there's, one, there's one little joke. There's yeah. one scene where there's the boom mic, but they don't even draw attention to it. No, really. they don't. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't even think about that when seeing that, that like, yeah, you're right. Ed Wood, it's like, ah, this guy's a joke and he doesn't know he's a joke. While in My Name is Dolomite, it's like, oh no, he wants to do this and he's committed, even though he doesn't know how to do it. So another thing I like about the movie is that uh, it, the goal is never for Rudy Ray Moore to get institutional validation. Mm-hmm. So early in the movie, he can't uh, he can't get anything off the ground. He tries his uh, his new Dolomite character. No record company will pick him up. So he's like, fine, I'm going to sell my records out of the back of my trunk. And yeah. then the record company picks him up. Mm-hmm. And then he makes the movie uh, on... Uh, you know, independently, no movie studio will pick it up. So, it's so like, he just does his own premiere. He four walls it, and mm. then they take notice. And the fact that they take notice isn't the triumph. The triumph is that he's now going to reach more people. <laughs> yes, that's right? right. Right. So it doesn't matter that the studio gets it. Mm-hmm. I also like that scene where they go see the front page. <laughs> so good. The Billy Wilder. We talked movie. about it when the trailer came out. That you know that Larry and Scott like sat down and they were like. What is the the perfect, perfect unfunny movie that they could go and the see? The perfect unfunny movie that like to, to that white people to, would find to funny. a white audience yeah. would seem like a funny movie. <laughs> That's right, because it's got uh, Jack London and Walter Matthau. Mm. It's Billy Wilder. Now, do you take offense that uh, they say they're filming Dolomite, and then you see scenes from the Human Tornado? Uh, I noticed that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you did. But no, I don't take offense because the scene they picked, <laughs> yeah, is an like, iconic moment from Human Tornado. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing about Dolomite is like it's not really the fun one that people remember. It's when they're thinking of like crazy Rudy Ray Moore stuff. They think of Petey Wheatstraw. Yeah, Petey Wheatstraw. My favorite Uh, Rudy Ray Moore movie. Can we get a sequel about Disco Godfather? (laughs) Yeah, but where is uh, Wesley Sykes going to come into that? Uh, So now, okay, now we're on Oscar Watch. What is that website? Oh, uh, Awards Daily. Awards Daily. Okay, so is Eddie Murphy in the running with Adam Sandler as Best Actor? Well, how I wouldn't know that. How would I? I I don't know who's in the running. Based on just performance of just seeing these roles have you seen uncut gems you've seen my name is dolomite that's well i mean look i would love them both to be nominated that's right <laughs> but but i you know what i reject the premise of your question okay i think it's i think the academy awards especially in this day and age are immoral <laughs> why are they immoral because we've got children in detention centers at the border <laughs> We've got. Why are we even recording this podcast, Will? What's the stuff going on? Well, it's you know, it's fine to appreciate art, but what's not fine is for rich people to give each other trophies on TV. Anyway. <laughs> so you're not going to watch the Oscars? No, I'll watch it. <laughs> of course you will. 